Hello everyone and welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach, your host for the Peace Alliance's Restorative Justice on the Rise. This ongoing telecouncil series features way showers from all over the world speaking to restorative justice, what's working, what's not, and we aim to connect, educate, and provide a, a platform for tools and resources to be shared and to illuminate the power of restorative justice in our world. This archive is from December 2012 and it features Lynette Parker of Prison Fellowship, Prison Fellowship International and the Center for Justice and Reconciliation. We had an incredible conversation with Lynette. Please find out more about PFI at pfi.org. That's Prison Fellowship International, PFI.org. And to access further archives and to listen in to future telecouncils and be an active participant, please visit us at dopeace.us and click on Restorative Justice. Thank you and enjoy this archive. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. This is your host, Molly Rowan Leach. I'm a board member of the Peace Alliance, and this is an ongoing free telecouncil series, Restorative Justice on the Rise. A very warm welcome to all of you. If you're uh, dialing in, Skyping in for the first time tonight, this is an hour-long council, and its mission is to connect people, to provide educational resources, tools, and to share stories of successes, what's working, what may not be working so well in the field of restorative justice and beyond. And before we go into a few more details about tonight's call, I'd like to take a moment to simply honor the indigenous peoples of our world tonight. We know that restorative justice is nothing new. It's something that has been around in our world for probably ancient times. And it's been practiced by tribes and peoples from every corner of the earth. So just placing some attention to the peoples, the indigenous peoples of our world, and thanking them for bringing forward what we now can tap into as restorative justice is really, truly on the rise in our Western world. So may we remember that we have all the answers in many ways already within us because our ancestors practiced many of the aspects of restorative justice. It works, it saves dollars, its statistics are phenomenally um, convincing, and so here we are perched in this moment in time, here at the close of 2012. This council is um, hopefully adding to the conversation in restorative justice and is uh, adding uh, the faculty of the important connections and uh, practical wisdoms that are coming up very frequently across the country and beyond as people are really working hard and serving with their hearts and courage to share of the power of restorative practices in our systems. So thank you again for being here tonight. And I want to do something really quick that I haven't done in the two seasons that this series has been going before, and that is to invite you all to, if you, um, let's just say maybe you've, you've heard of restorative justice, 
but you've never really gotten that deeply into it. So perhaps you're fairly new to the concept in some ways. Press 1 on your keypad right now. I'm just going to take a little survey before we welcome our very special guest tonight. So if you're new, if you feel you're fairly new to the field, um, you're very interested uh, or just curious, press 1 on your keypad. Okay. So let's say you've kind of known about restorative justice for a while, and um, perhaps you're even trying to implement it on the community level. Press 2 on your keypad, if that might be you, kind of a medium level of, of, inter of interest, of, um, of perhaps even being on the ground active with it. Okay, so wow, that's great. Um, looks like we've got about 50-50 so far. There's a couple hands up, or excuse me, hands down um, that haven't raised yet, but for the most part it looks like it's about a split. And then let's just see, press 3 on your keypad if you've been working in this field for perhaps 5 to 10 years and feel like you have a pretty good handle on things and maybe are even at the cutting edge wherever you are in the world in restorative justice. Press 3 on your keypad. Of course, hopefully we're all employing beginner's mind <laughs> to some degree in this field. But all right, great. Well, what a great survey. So it looks like tonight we have uh, a wonderful blend, mostly of ones and twos. And so, again, a warm welcome to you all. Um, for the archives of this series, please absolutely go to dopeace.us to access the archives from not only this season so far, but also from last season's calls, telecouncils, including great conversations with Dominic Barter, Kay Pranis, um, which we spoke with Arun Gandhi. We uh, just have had some great conversations with, with not only people that may have name recognition in the world, but the also equally important folks that are working very hard on the ground in their communities, such as Lois DeMott of Citizens for Prison Reform. So please access th those archives at dopeace.us. And just a quick announcement, too. I just booked Johan Galtung for our kickoff of 2013 on January 2nd. We'll be speaking with Johan uh, about the principles of restorative justice and indigenous influences. So join us, if you can, on January 2nd. That's Wednesday, January 2nd at, uh, I believe, 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. And next week we'll be talking with Margot Van Sleitman, who is uh, an incredible survivor of her father's murder, and she, she's going to be speaking with us at this time next week. So please join us. So without further ado, as many of you know, uh, this telecouncil platform is for your voice as well as for our honored guest speaker and for a conversation that you can get involved in throughout tonight We'll be together for an hour. Please press 1 on your telephone keypad if you'd like to comment or ask a question. And so without further ado, again, I just am honored really completely to invite Lynette Parker into the circle with us tonight. Lynette works with prison fellowship national organizations in the developed excuse me, the development of justice reform initiatives and programs. 
She provides training and information in the area of restorative justice and oversees PFI, that's Prison Fellowship International's, two main justice programs, the Sycamore Tree Project and Communities of Restoration. Lynette also represents PFI at meetings of the UN Alliance of NGOs on Crime Prevention and Criminal Justice and other United Nations events. She has published articles on the use of restorative practices in Latin America, and she's also serving as a volunteer restorative conferencing facilitator for the Piedmont Dispute Resolution Center in Warrington, Virginia. And it was, it was just um, really wonderful to get connected with Lynette. I remember being um, kind of out there in the web world about three years ago, wondering where to go to find more information about restorative justice. And I found Restorative Justice Online, which I'm sure Lynette will be sharing with us tonight. But that, that is a great resource if you don't already know about Restorative Justice Online, which, again, Lynette blogs there and provides articles and information. She's a part of that organization. It's a subsector, I believe, of PFI. And that's rjonline.org. It's one of my favorite resources to share with people. So, Lynette, just a, a greatly warm welcome to you tonight, and I wondered if, if you might start out, as we often do on these councils, by sharing a part of your story of what brought you into this work and this incredible service that you're providing and have been for some time. Welcome. Well, thank you. Um, it really is an honor to to be invited to, to be a part of the council um, tonight. Um, I've been working with, at Prison Fellowship International for about 12 years. Um, and that really is how I came to restorative justice. I finished a master's degree in 99 and was kind of looking around to what I would do after that. My degrees in Latin, actually in Latin American studies, um, anthropology and history concentrations, and I applied for a, a really a research administrative assistant job at PFI because I was intrigued by the work that they did, and that was my introduction to restorative justice. And over the last 12 years, just through meeting some really amazing people in the restorative justice community and just seeing the work around the world and how people are affected when they're actually brought together and invited to, to share their hearts and their stories and how that can actually bring real transformation into people's lives and relationships. It's something that I've definitely developed a passion for. Mm. Well, do you have uh, do you have a story perhaps that you'd like to share tonight to kind of take us into um, a deeper understanding for some of us who are fairly new to the idea of restorative justice? Would you like to uh, to share a story or perhaps just your own idea of what what is so special about restorative justice and what it is even to you? Well, when I meet with people who are coming into a restorative justice program, or the one where I volunteer, I always say that restorative justice is a way of thinking about crime as more than breaking the law. Laws are important, 
but we have laws for a reason, and that's because crime causes harm to people, to relationships, and to communities. And for justice to truly be done, that harm needs to be dealt with. And and just thinking through the stories, I've, I, I think of the six years that I've actually been a facilitator and uh, my time at PFI and listening to stories. I go back to a restorative conference that I did, I did um, about four years now, four years ago now. It was an interesting case. It was a, a case of arson um, that involved a church that was completely destroyed in the fire. Um, the young man had set several fires, and the church building just happened to be one of those. And I remember meeting with the pastor of that church and explaining restorative justice to him and then going to his church on a Sunday morning and in introducing his congregation to the concepts and the possibilities and then meeting with the young, the young man who was an adult at the time but very young who had set the fire and talked with several members of his family and we came together in a conference where you had the pastor, his wife, and about seven members of his church. You had the young the offender, the young man, and his sisters, his parents, his grandmother, grandfather, and an aunt who all participated in the conference. And I remember this young man being brought in because he was incarcerated at the time by a sheriff's deputy, and how everyone was separated on two sides, two sides of the room, the church folks, the family, and how, in a lot of ways, the father of the young man, who was a firefighter, wouldn't even look at his son. He would look at me. He would look at the floor. And we went through the process with the, allowing the young man to tell his story, allowing each person there to tell their story, the church members on you know, the impact of losing their church building and what that meant to them, and the family of the young man talking about the impact the crime had on their lives, you know, the mother's fear of her son, the fear for his future fear for when he was actually released from prison. I also remember the church uh, members who talked about not only their pain, but some of them opened deep wounds they had and shared with the family about offenders in their own families and having been on that side of it as well and actually reaching out to this family to comfort them. And at the very end of it, I come back to the pastor and ask if he had anything else he wanted to say. And this individual, who had been very stoic throughout the entire thing, from the first time I met with him, he had really not shown very much emotion, broke down in tears and pointed at the young man and said, I want you to know I love this young man. Uh, it brings me to tears thinking about it now. Mm. He got up and he walked. He walked across the circle and embraced this young man who had destroyed the church building where you know he, he, he pastored. And it was at that moment that the father 
looked at his son. Mm. And after that, when we closed the conference, you didn't have two sides anymore. You had people mingling about, hugging, sharing with each other, talking. Anyone who walked in at that moment would not even think these were people who three hours earlier had been on separate sides of the room in total silence. They had come together and they had found a place where they could deal with something very painful, something that had consequences for each of them, but deal with it in a way that brought healing and brought hope and built relationship with them. Hmm. So that's, that's such a powerful story. And that's real. <laughs> the, these <laughs> things do happen. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do. Uh, and, you know, it's so easy for to talk about crime in the abstract, to talk mm -hmm. about, oh, offenders should, you know, should be punished, and talk about different things. There are always consequences. And the one thing I know is a restorative process is not easy, it's not light on anyone. But it also opens so many doors. I mm -hmm. talked to a woman I talked to a woman today. Her son um, had committed an offense. And as I talked with her, she was saying, I can't believe this. I never thought I would be able to, I would be saying my son is a felon had committed a felony, you know, and questioning her own parenting and and just the pain that I see there and the pain that no court process can address. I I've talked to victims who really want to meet with an offender to know why they did what they did or to ask questions, but because of the way the system's set up, they can't unless they can come mm -hmm. unless they find a restorative process and so much harm is caused when law enforcement lawyers say don't talk to them mm -hmm. and that's the one thing they need. Now Lynette, I was uh, so moved by uh, when I visited the, the website, I went in to look around at the Sycamore Tree Project and you <laughs> have some powerful videos in there um, some uh, just a lot of information in there about how that all works. And is it is it true that what happens is victims and offenders come together, but they're not their own victims and offenders? Could could you right? Share, could you share a little bit about that? And then I also before you share, want to just add what I I was so completely moved by one of the slides that shares about one of the victims sharing with an offender who says that he doesn't have any idea why his victim would want to meet him and speak with him. And then the victim, who's not, of course, co connected with the offender, says to him, I know why they would want to speak to you. What, you know, what was, your, what was the, um, what were the feelings going on for the person that you murdered you know did he struggle what happened you know these are really a lot of the basic questions that that were interchanged there and and those are the ones that seem to really help there to be i think what was described as a uh, a god moment 
uh, of mm-hmm. healing for for both of them in that case. Mm-hmm. So if you yes. if you would for us just share what the Sycamore Tree Project is, and it, it to me it seems like you're doing this all over the world. Which this is we're talking about significant programming that you've created with PFI and the Center for Justice and Reconciliation. So let's start with. Uh, talking about the Sycamore Project, and then maybe go into communities of restoration. Okay. Well, the Sycamore Tree Project is one of the uh, programs that Prison Fellowship International offers to its member uh, organizations. Um, there are prison fellowships in 129 countries. And 28 of those currently use the Sycamore Tree Project in some form. And this is an in-prison restorative justice program. Uh, it does bring in unrelated victims to meet with prisoners. And, and the way it was designed is you have six prisoners and six victims. And again, these are not the direct victims of these prisoners. And they have a series of eight sessions where they meet and discuss various topics, um, you know, you know start, starting with an introduction, but talking about what is crime and its impact, you know, issues of confession and repentance, making amends, forgiveness and reconciliation. And during this process, they use various we use various stories. Uh, Prison Fellowship International is a Christian organization. Um, although this program does not is not an evangelism program at all, but it does use stories from the Bible to be discussion starters to talk about who victims are, who uh, who prisoners are, or who offenders are. And during this process of exploration or this journey of exploration, these people who have been impacted by crime, whether prisoner or victim have an opportunity to ask those questions you were talking about. You know, why would you do this? What were you thinking? What led you to do this? Or for prisoners to, you know, meet someone who's been affected by crime and actually see the human face of crime. And they go through a time of a confession of telling their own stories and sharing their own hurts. And there have been some extremely powerful stories and experiences that have come out of that. Um, in Colombia, they ran Sycamore Tree Project in prisons, and all of the offenders had committed multiple murders. And the victims, many of them had lost multiple family members to assassination for various reasons. And just the, being able to share those stories, the amount of remorse that develops empathy on the part of prisoners, and for victims to work through their own anger and to be able to share their stories in a way that brings kind of that openness, that healing to them and share forgiveness. Mm. And it, it creates different avenues. Many prisoners after going through Sycamore Tree Project want to meet with their direct victim. 
because they now understand what they have done. I think in you know one story coming to mind from Italy where when Prison Fellowship Italy wanted to run Sycamore Tree Project, I, my feeling was that the prison services were a little afraid of the program and basically said to Prison Fellowship Italy, okay, if it'll work in opera prison, it'll work anywhere. And by that, what they meant that they would work with men who had been con convicted of murder, but these were all mafia assassins who had committed multiple mm -hmm. murders for the mafia. And so they did. They had these six men who had been in organized crime and they brought in people who had lost family members to mafia assassination for various reasons. And there's one story from that of uh, an individual whose son had been murdered by the by a by one of the mafia um, because the son's prospective father-in-law had done something that upset the mafia. Anyway, the police would not really investigate the murder. So this man had gone on a crusade to bring justice for his son's murder. And he was instrumental in identifying the person who had actually committed the crime and bringing him to court. And he did not miss a court case, a, a court date at all. He did not want to miss any of it because he wanted to see this man go through, be convicted, and sentenced for his son's murder. And the final hearing where the sentence was actually going to come down took place, were scheduled for the same day and time as one of the Sycamore Tree sessions, one of the later Sycamore Tree Project sessions. And no one expected him to come to that. They expected him to go to court. But instead of going to that sentencing and seeing kind of the culmination of his quest, he went to prison that day to be a part of that Sycamore Tree Project session because he felt like that's where he needed to be because that was more life-giving than being in court. Mm. And, wow. you know, we... And we see these stories, and there are stories of prisoners. There was a young man in England and Wales who was awaiting trial for a crime, um, and he somehow ended up in Sycamore Tree Project, and he had pled not guilty. And after going through Sycamore Tree Project, he said, you know what, I did do this, and I do not need it was in, to drag my victim through a court case because I did do this. And he changed his plea. And you know, he had, he had it was, I think he had robbed an old an elderly person and he felt like he didn't want to drag her through that. Now the courts, while recognizing, you know, his willingness to change his plea and understood, you know, didn't take it you know, didn't lighten his sentence or anything for that for that decision. And he was okay with that because he realized what he had done, the harm he had caused, the fear he had caused the 
older woman, and he didn't want to put her through anything else. And so you have this change in his attitude as well. And that, to me, is the beginning of where justice happens when we start recognizing the harms we've caused. And just start owning them very simply by saying, yes, I did do it. So um, as I said, Sycamore Tree Project is active in 28 countries. There are uh, a few more that are in process of implementing the program. And these would include Latvia, um, Panama, and so uh, there are some African countries where the program is also being used, such as South mm -hmm. Africa and um, the Philippines, and uh, almost everywhere and um, almost every region, this program is being used. And I recently talked with Prison Fellowship Bahamas. They've run, I was there May of 2011 to do training for them. And they ran their first Sycamore Tree program in the end of 2011. And they just completed their second one. And these end with a celebration event where the participants, depending on prison policy, the participants can invite family members and members of the community that can come in to be a part of this celebration where they talk about the things that they've learned and the changes that are happening and their plans for the future. And apparently media had been involved and one of the prisoners who had um, gone through Sycamore Tree Project talked about his experience and the things that he had learned. And his victim saw this. And now I'm working with Prison Fellowship Bahamas to help them facilitate a meeting between this individual and his direct victim mm. coming out of that program. So it's opening doors that way as well. It, it just seems, Lynette, like such a brilliant bridge to uh, bring together the victim of another case and the offender of another case or as mm -hmm. Dominic Barter's languaging, which I really love, the author of a particular uh -huh. case and the receiver of a particular mm -hmm. case and blend them up in a way that it's not so direct at first. Right. There's something right. pretty amazing that can occur when you remove that, that direct pressure, at least for the first experience. And I'm sure you've witnessed quite a bit that... Um, that comes about from, from having a bit of a, a bulwark between that possibility of meeting directly with the mm -hmm. receiver or victim and actually processing through with somebody else's receiver or victim and likewise. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd just like to take a moment right now, uh, again, to honor and thank you, Lynette, for being with us tonight. We're talking with Lynette Parker of Prison Fellowship International and the Center for Justice and Reconciliation, as well as Restorative Justice Online. And you can find out more about Lynette and PFI at pfi.org. And also, I highly recommend the online web resource hub 
called Restorative Justice Online, which is, uh, I believe, a subsidiary of, of this organization and um, maintained by you. Uh, is, it, is it not, Lynette? Yes. A restorative Justice Online is a project or service from Prison Fellowship International. And as I mentioned earlier, it, it was one of the first places that I found a great comprehensive uh, hub for academic uh, papers, for information, for uh, just a comprehensive resource online for restorative justice. And I really appreciate that. And that's rjonline.org. And so I'd just like to invite anybody that would like to chime in here tonight. Again, remember you can press 1 on your keypad if you have a question or a comment that you'd like to make tonight. Pressing 1 on your telephone keypad, or if you're Skyping in, of course you can do the same. Press 1 on your Skype keypad. Um, and we'll, we'll go ahead and answer some, or open it up um, at any time in this next 25 minutes. And I'd, I'd like to, to also acknowledge the many web questions that we have gotten for tonight's call and maybe start out with one of those because it, it ties into what we've been talking about, Lynette. Um, it, it, okay. One of the, the, the common strings and threads of these conversations and councils really seems to be around how the um, so-called average citizen can implement or engage in something such as what you're doing with with um, the the not only the Sycamore project but but also the the communities of restoration. How how do people get started? How how do they find each other? Um, how does restorative justice actually begin to be implemented on the ground in an individual community? Um. Well, I've been. I guess lucky in that I've always encountered, I've been able to encounter people who had already paved the way um, for me. But it really does, it takes one or two people who really see the issues and who want something to, ch to change, to uh, start either by going to your local schools and saying, hey, can we look at this as a discipline model? or working with a mediation center in their community or starting a mediation center in their community to help not only with criminal cases but other cases of providing alternative dispute resolution services and working with the courts. I, I'm, I'm hesitant to provide an answer because I've not actually had to do that. I've, um, again, been very blessed to be able to walk in and just walk into my local mediation center in the county where I live and say, hey, I understand you have a restorative justice program. How do I get involved in training? So I'm definitely looking for those types of opportunities mm -hmm. locally. Uh, and if there's not one in your local community, is there one in your state that maybe you can talk to uh, to, to see how you can get started, maybe creating a subsidiary or getting training that way. Mm -hmm. There are some great resources available for, for training. Um, yeah, the International Institute for, for Restorative Practices office, offers very good training. And there are some really great organizations around the US. And I know that there are some great ones in both Europe and Africa who are all 
also providing training. So, would you mind saying, um, if you know off the top of your head, what those organizations are overseas? We have a lot of people well, that access these archives, and it's a great resource for us to hear these kinds of things from people like you. Well, I know in the UK, the Restorative Justice Council um, is a is the best place to start looking for training. Uh, you have the Restorative Justice Center for South Africa um, in South Africa. In broader Europe, you also have uh, the European Forum for Restorative Justice, which links different groups together so they can help you, uh, con you know, help people connect with services locally. They have directories of member organizations that provide restorative services. So that would be a place to start looking. And those are the ones I can think of off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. If I may just add um, a couple that I know of, uh, including, of course, you mentioned the Institute um, for uh, the International Institute for Restorative Practices. And mm -hmm. we'll be talking with them in a couple weeks. So uh, I'm looking forward to that conversation. And I know um, they're based back east, I believe, but they're they're pretty much an international organization, as their name yes. implies. They're based in, mm -hmm. uh -huh. they're based in Pennsylvania. In, in, excuse me, where? Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. OK, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And then there's also the Community Confer Conferencing Center with Lauren Abramson. Mm -hmm who was a, uh, a guest here on this series. Then, um, and that's a community conferencing center in Baltimore, Maryland that offers trainings. Uh, there's trainings available internationally as well with Restorative Circles. And that's mm -hmm. restorativecircles.org. That's with Dominic Barter and his practices. And so those are, those are just a handful of great resources, but restorative justice online really does house a lot of of information for people too that might be looking for leads to where they you know where to start. So back to mm -hmm. you, to the original question from Joanne. Thank you, Joanne, again for your question. By the way, um, just asking how does one really go about starting? So. Um, the you know b before we get into anything further around some of these these uh, five foot details, could you say a little bit about of course the other really key program that you manage and oversee, which is the communities of restoration? Tell us ab about that. What what's that all about? Well, communities of restoration is an it's more than a program. It actually originated in Brazil. Um, this is a, a Brazilian product, if you will. If, and it grew out of um, and out of the volunteer work of some Catholic, lay Catholic volunteers who went into prison back in the 1970s and saw what was happening in Brazilian prisons at that point and realized that prison does not rehabilitate. Prison does not address issues of any sort, really, to help people change and you know, improve their lives. And so they began working in prison, offering spiritual aid, and then eventually were actually given 
a local prison by the government to run. And they developed something that they call the APOC methodology. And APOC is an acronym that stands for, a, it's a Brazilian organization, but the English translation would be Association for the Protection and Aid to the Convicted. And it's a holistic methodology that, first of all, looks at crime as the refusal to love. We are all born with the capacity, the ability to love, but it's like writing or speaking. You have the capacity, but you have to learn how to love. And you know, generally, that's done in family. But when that doesn't happen, it and it results in crime. Those people end up in prison, and prison does nothing to teach them how to love. So this APOC methodology basically says we are going to love you, the prisoner. We're going to love the people around you, your family. And we're going to teach, teach you how to do that. And so people come into a community of restoration, our APOC prison in Brazil, into a very different environment than the common prison. It's an environment where they actually have a voice. So prisoners are actually involved in problem solving, decision making. They have various responsibilities around. And they work to meet all the needs of the prisoner, which are you know material needs. Uh, again, speaking from the Brazilian system, everything from basic medical assistance to legal assistance to assistance to the family. And beyond that, though, because one of the things they realize is you cannot be rehabilitate fully until you deal with the harms you've caused by committing your crime. And so there's work with victims. And many times, you know, prisoners who are in APOC, which they do not use the term prisoner, and they use the Portuguese term recuperando, which could be translated as someone, as the one being rehabilitated. Mm. And they bring all of this together in a prison environment. And it's very, very different I, than any prison I've ever been in. Um, it's, hard, it's even hard to explain in words what it feels like. It's a very open environment. People always have um, something to do, and not busy work. It's all working toward aiding that person to find their human dignity. They, their value as human beings. And in learning their value as human beings, learning the value of other human beings and how to be in community with each other and, and owning mm -hmm. what they've done, but not letting that define them. There's a saying mm -hmm. that, comes out of, that they use in Brazil, it's kill the criminal, save the person. Mm -hmm. And what mm -hmm. they're saying is the person is not defined by the criminal act. Mm -hmm. And we need to reach the person. And this has actually inspired other similar programs um, that have been implemented in various places around the world. Um, it's highly intensive resource, 
human resource as well as other resources. So it's only active in about 11 countries. But it creates an environment that is actually based on rehabilitation or based on human dignity, whereas the prison environment just is not. And in the United States, are there programs? I, I think I saw something in Texas. Is that is that true? Mm -hmm. Yes, Prison Fellowship Ministries USA has. They started in the late 1990s a program called the Interchange Freedom Initiative, which was inspired by this APOC methodology uh, in Brazil, and it's now currently in Texas and in Minnesota. Mm. And so really, Lynette, it feels like what we're looking at is a complete paradigm shift um, in many ways, or a paradigm transformation, given that, that we've been looking at a system that is very punitive-based, mm -hmm. that, that believes that that's the only way, really, to, right. to meet justice's needs. And so mm -hmm. we're really looking at a whole reframing of what justice really really can be and what right. um, perhaps even the deeper truth of what it's calling us to uh, rise to the angels of our better selves as, as Martin Luther King so beautifully has said mm -hmm. of bringing forward from what has already come in, you know, in our history with of course the indigenous peoples of our world and, and particular practices of making things right in a way that also doesn't remove the dignity of the human being. And so what I'm hearing right. is just such a, a, a really powerful resonance of, of that throughout these programs. And mm -hmm. I wonder, how do, how do we work with those who may not see that uh, value, the value that actually as Dominic Barter, who is, is from Rio, Brazil, um, says something so beautiful about about restorative justice, about conflict, about leaning into it, and that, that it's the work that is too urgent to rush, and that mm -hmm. it's, it's actually safer uh, to, to work into it together, to work through it, to face it, to be with it, with each other, as you said earlier, that, that it's not an easy process, but it actually, on the, if we move through it together, on the other end, it brings out astounding possibilities of healing and transformation. And not only that, has proven, just as uh, Deb Witzel from Longmont Community Restorative Justice here in Colorado said last week, they're looking at 90% success with their youth mm -hmm. programming. And she estimated millions upon millions of dollars have been saved from avoiding mm -hmm. incarceration and reoffense, given what they have implemented there. So I just um, so appreciate the the courageousness of programs like this to come in and show that there there is another way. And I wonder what 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 do we how do we help people who may be really married to the idea that punitive justice is really the only way to to make right. Well, first of all, I think we have to enter dialogue with them. And 
understand that people feel the way they do for reasons. Um, now, I may disagree with them, but they have a reason for why they stand the way that they do. And again, as I said earlier, crime is easy to talk about in the abstract. It's very easy to talk about being tough on crime when you have to, when you're not the one who's facing the judge for sentencing, or when it's not your child facing the judge for sentencing. But it, I think we have to hear what the concerns are. Because the concerns are real. They, come out, they may come out of fear. They may come out of not understanding. Or, or they may come out of tradition. Well, of course this is the way it should be in their, their minds. And hearing that and affirming that they, as human beings, have a, a right to feel the way they do, and then showing them where we actually have common ground. because. We do have common ground in that we want a better future. Mm -hmm. We want a future where we have less crime. We want people who have been harmed to find what they need to move beyond the harm, anger, and bitterness that they feel, to be restored. We want people who have committed harm to understand the impact of their behavior, to understand that someone else has been hurt. And not just the person that they hurt, but they've hurt themselves, they've hurt their families, and they've hurt the community around all of them. And that they, too, can change behavior. They don't have to be defined by that. We want changed behavior. We want people to find healing. And if we can open up the dialogue on the common ground that we have with people who may have a, a more punitive mindset, then we can actually get into the dialogue. So sometimes it's finding what is the common ground that we have and then saying, okay, I understand what you're saying, but let me introduce you to this victim. Let me mm. introduce you to this person. Come watch a restorative conference. No one who's ever sat through one can think that it's soft on crime. Um, I, I keep going back. In Virginia, the Restorative Justice Association of Virginia has tried for a couple of different times to actually get restorative justice legislation passed in Virginia. And one of the state legislators who was extremely tough on crime. Just he, he pretty much killed it in committee. And there was a crime victim, a woman who had been raped in his district who wanted to go into prison and confront her offender. And the prison department said no. The Department of Corrections would not allow that to happen. So she lobbied her uh, representatives at the state level to change that, to create a law that gave victims that right. And so here you had the state legislator who, would, who felt that a, you know, a restorative justice bill was soft on crime, was not where we needed to go, actually 
put forward his own bill giving victims the right to go into prison and meet with their offenders. And so it was finding a way to talk to him that he understood. And what he understood was this woman who had been harmed in a tremendous way had rights and had needs that his punitive system would not meet. Now, would he support restorative justice? We still have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. But there was some common ground there that I think mm -hmm. if we could dialogue about that, we could get much further down the road. Mm. I know even the council members among us here on this series, many of, many of us have very powerful stories of our own, whether we're victims or offenders formerly or, or have loved ones of, uh, on either, um, I, I hesitate to say side, of the situation because right. of the fact that we... <laughs> But but it, from what you're you're saying, it it just it's it, it's profoundly powerful to bring forward. If you do have a story, mm -hmm. like I I have my own story, of course, with my mother being imprisoned for 14 years in the state of Idaho, um, mm -hmm. having mental illness, and oh. that's part of the motivation that that brought me to bring a gift, uh, hopefully to the world, of some sort of helping there to be a recognition of all the things that you've spoken so eloquently about tonight, Lynette, and that this does involve much more than just uh, two people per se. It's, it's mm -hmm. a much larger picture, and it's also about a bigger story that's happening to each of us in our lives and, and also identifying that we are at essence uh, worthy of love and worthy of the basic things of humanity um, if not a flourishing of them. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I, I really appreciated, too, you pinpointing that the behavior is separate from the being and that, that a person's essence and, um, and who they are is, is also uh, does not need to be, um, their, their, their behavior or crime does not need to be pinned on them for the rest of their lives and right. become their identity, nor on the other end for, for victims um, mm -hmm. to feel that they must drag that victimhood to their, to their grave as well. And so right. I, um, I just, I know we're running out of time tonight here. The hour is almost up, and I'd like to remind those of you that are with us tonight from wherever you're calling in from, please press 1 on your keypad if you have anything you'd like to make sure to comment on or ask Lynette. And um, if you're Skyping in, do the same. Press 1 on your telephone keypad. And I, I have a question from Alan. Thank you, Alan, for your question. And this is for you, Lynette. He says that he, he's been trained with PFI in the mid-'90s, and he would like to start a visitation ministry and RJ fellowship as an individual in Idaho, and what would you recommend? And I know that that kind of ties into what what you were what we were discussing earlier. But for someone who has gone through the PFI trainings, and um, such as Alan, he's asking how might he start something there in Idaho? Um. Well, I, 
some of it would say if it, it's specifically with like prison fellowship, he can work with his local prison fellowships to to get started uh, and you know what programs are already available. If not, if there's not anything already locally available, or if he's wanting to do something outside of, say, what prison fellowship does, then I would you know, research what's, what is locally available, uh, develop a, pro, a project plan of, you know, kind of a mission statement, what you're wanting to achieve, and talk to local partners or stakeholders that could become partners. And if you're wanting to go into prison and meet with people, approach your local Department of Corrections, the local prison. Uh, if there's a, a contact, maybe a chaplain, uh, that way. Um, that there are different opportunities. But definitely first, researching what is locally available and who's already doing different things. And, mm -hmm. and you know, it's amazing to me how many people are being called to this, mm -hmm. if I can use that terminology, and whether it's having a coffee hour for ex-offenders every two weeks to provide them with support, or if it's um, going into prison to just do visitation, or developing in-prison programming with you know, your local prison so that you can start perhaps bringing in something like Sycamore Tree where you have unrelated victims coming in and sharing their stories with prisoners. So it's always a good idea to look at what is locally available, contacting uh, the prison to see what volunteer opportunities are available within your local prison. Always, you know, again, Prison Fellowship is a Christian ministry, but contact the local PF if that's something that you're comfortable with. and see what opportunities they provide there. And Lynette, I also am wondering, as you're sharing about this, does PF also integrate, like, for example, with the Communities of Restoration Project, which is so powerful, and the mm -hmm. Sycamore Tree Project, for that matter, do you ever partner with related organizations that are doing similar work in the community, like previous to a crime happening, but the, but that are working, you know, more local community conflict issues and um, more prevention-based, or or um, looking more at at that end of things. Like for example, people working within schools with our youth, mm -hmm. people that are are uh, really interested in in setting a new paradigm before the crime actually happens. Are you right. thinking of partnering with organizations like that, or do you? Well, um, I can't speak for prison fellowship in the U.S. since that's my work is international. Uh -huh. But I do know internationally that's happening. It's partnering with local uh, groups to go into prison. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, to go from the prison experience to go into the schools and working with uh, at-risk youth, providing programming. I know that. You, there have been some diversion programs that have been created by pr partnership between prison fellowship and local organizations, not necessarily because a crime has been committed, but the, the, there are issues with the you know, at-risk youth, um, for whatever reason, that go into to provide 
just that type of prevention work to say, you know what, there is a different way of doing this. Um, to be honest, that's one of the reasons why work with children of prisoners is so important um, mm. for many fellowships around the world. Um, mm -hmm. Because children of prisoners face various uh, obstacles to flourishing mm -hmm. as human beings. And I, I don't know if you or any of the other council members are aware, but in some countries, children actually go to prison with their parents. Wow. Uh, there's not any other place for them to be. So, you know, so prison fellowships are working there to, you know, oh. reach those kids and provide them with alternatives. Wow. <laughs> and I could keep going on and on about some of this. So right. <laughs> I better stop. Oh. Well, Lynette, it's uh, in closing tonight, I just want to invite you to share anything. Um, and then I have a few closing announcements just about our upcoming schedule for, for those of you who would like to join in in the coming weeks. So, but before we do that, Lynette, do you have any closing comments about anything tonight that, that really um, was cooking for you? And, and I, I just so appreciate your, your sharing so expansively about the programming and also about the, the, the deeper paradigm shift that we're amidst. Well, I just I want to say thank you. It it really is an honor to be invited to share about you know what we do and um, just kind of the, the powerful experiences I've had uh, with restorative justice and just the real blessing this this work has been to me. I feel almost selfish at times talking about it. So I just want to say you know, thank you and thank you for you know using restorative justice online and. Thank you for the work that you do in bringing people together and connecting the various voices from around the world. And um, well, I'll just keep working. That's right. And as Deb Witzel said last week, um, to, to tie in with what you're saying, there are so many of us that are working, that, that are, are seeing results and progress, and that are having uh, incredible experiences not only with uh, the results of restorative justice, but, but even more the, the, the value, it's humanness, it's humanity, and mm -hmm. the transformation that can come from restorative justice is profound. Mm -hmm. uh, we know it's a process that can't be forced, of course, but we know also that on the other side of the perceived wall is something quite extraordinary. So, Lynette, I just want to thank you again and encourage people to check out pfi.org. Also, you can check out Restorative Justice Online, which has been a longstanding great resource hub online for restorative justice. Everything you can imagine is there. That's rjonline.org. And I also would like to just invite you, council members, to please come back next week. We'll be talking with Margot Van Sleitman, of the Sabona Project, and she um, is a, a victim of uh, her father's murder and now works with within the prison system with her father's murderer. So this is going to be a pretty special conversation with somebody um, who has had direct experience in the receiving end of crime and who has transformed it herself and is now working with the very person who took her father's life. That's next Thursday, December 13th, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. The following week, we're with Steve Kaur 
of the International Institute of Restorative Practices. So join us then. That will be a special day. That's Wednesday, December 20th, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. And then we take our Christmas break and come back for 2013 on January 2nd. That's a Wednesday with the grandfather of the modern peacebuilding movement, Johan Galtung. And that month of January, we're also going to be honoring the indigenous perspectives in restorative justice. And I'll be sharing more with you in the coming weeks about our special lineup for the month of January. So thank you so much again, everyone. Each of you is a member of this council. If you have any feedback you'd like to share, you all have the email for me, molly at thepeacealliance.org. Please, please stay in touch. Join us in the coming weeks. And go check out Prison Fellowship International and Restorative Justice Online. Have a great night, everyone. And Lynette, I'm bowing to you deeply. <laughs> and I know we all are. Thank you for your time. And good Thank luck you. to you in the future. Good night, okay. everyone. Good night.